Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. This is the beginning of a new section of this written sermon that we've been studying here at Christ the King now for several weeks. Those of you who are joining us this morning, welcome. We're going to start this sermon with a brief review of some of the remarkable ground that we've covered in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews. From the beginning of Hebrews, of course, the focus has been on the Son, the one in and as whom God speaks. In these last days, the pastor wrote, in chapter 1, verse 2, God has spoken to us by his Son. The Son, who has eternally existed as God with God, the heir of all things, the pastor writes, through whom also God created the world. So we've considered how the history of the cosmos itself is connected to the Son. It's he who created it, it's he who upholds it, who bears it along to its appointed end. But then, over these last few weeks, we've been considering how within that cosmic history, we find another history. A smaller history, I guess you could say, but not a less significant one, because as it turns out, the Son is intimately involved in that history as well. The pastor first gestured to this back in chapter 1, verse 3, didn't he, when he said there, it was after making purification for sins that the Son sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So a simple question gets us to the heart of what Hebrews has been about so far. Whose sin was the eternal son making purification for? And the answer is yours and mine, dear friends. That within Hebrews' cosmic history, we find the history of humankind, the history of men and women, those who were created uniquely in the image of God, to have dominion over all God had made, but who sinned, and as a result, now don't have dominion. So we saw, a few weeks ago now, how after quoting from Psalm 8 in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 6 to 8, the pastor makes this point quite clear. Things are not now as they were created to be. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, to mankind, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Of course we don't. Because sin brought death. Just as the Lord had warned it would. Yet, despite their sin, the pastor tells us God will see this purpose for men and women realized. Chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. No, not to angels, but to women and men. And how would he do it? How would he bring about this promised destiny of humanity and creation? Well, he would do it through his Son. Pastor says in chapter 2, verse 9, But we see him, 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. God will bring many sons and daughters to glory, as verse 10 says. And the way he does it is Jesus, the Son who would take on flesh and blood, who would become fully a human being, like us in every respect except sin. This is where we were last week, verse 14 of chapter 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. No, it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Or in other words, he helps you and me, dear friends. He enables us to have access to God. We'll let verse 17 bring us to the end of this short review. Verse 17 of chapter 2, Therefore, the pastor says, He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And then what is it that's at the center of the role of the high priest? Goes on to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So I've read it a couple times, but we could probably again refer to Paul to summarize Hebrews at this point when we consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We turn then the corner this morning into chapter 3 of Hebrews. Only we're not allowed to forget what we've just seen in these last few weeks. Because chapter 3 verse 1 begins with the word therefore. Therefore. Given the Son's involvement in the history of humanity, given all that the Son has done to bring about God's purposes for us, given especially the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of the Son as Jesus to sit at the right hand of his Father, where he is now as our high priest. Therefore, the pastor urges his hearers, consider Jesus. That's the application, if you will, of all that the pastor's been saying from the very beginning. They are to consider Jesus. That's where I want us to end up this morning. We want to do this, in fact, by going forward and considering Jesus in the very ways the pastor does in verses 1 to 6. And then at least to comment on what it will mean for us to go on considering Jesus in our lives. Because as we'll see, I hope, and especially into next week, considering Jesus isn't a one-time thing. It's what is to shape our whole life. 
It's the key to doing what the pastor says we must do at the end of verse 6 from our text today, to hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's the point we'll be returning to at the end this morning. To get there, I suggest we take the content of verses 1 to 6 under three headings, which are really just three questions. First, which is again a review, who are we? That's again where the pastor starts in chapter 3, who are we? Second, who is Jesus? Or at least what is it about Jesus that the pastor wants to emphasize here? And then thirdly, given who we are and who Jesus is, what are we to do? Who are we? Who is Jesus in this text? And what are we to do? And I've already said that that last question will center on what it means to consider Jesus, which is where we'll end up this morning, Lord willing. I'll move quickly through the first question by asking, who are we? Because what we find is that what the pastor has to say here in verse 1 on this subject is explicitly connected to what we've considered in chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. In other words, this won't be new information if you've been reading Hebrews up to this point with us. But that itself is part of the point, I think. The pastor is keen, again, to remind his readers who they are, as I think you and I too need to be reminded. Otherwise, it's true, isn't it, that we lose sight of this. Under the pressures of life, the priorities of the world, we very easily begin to see ourselves in ways that are not in line with what the scriptures say about us as Christians. We begin to live out of a sense of identity that doesn't correspond with what the scriptures say. And so, I don't want to skip it. Consider again what the pastor says in verse 1 about who we are. Therefore, he writes, Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. We've said several times now that the pastor is clearly writing to believers, to Christians. It's not just non-believers who need to consider Jesus. It's believers. Who are we then, according to the pastor? Three components in this verse, very quickly. Number one, we're siblings, and siblings of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the pastor calls them. Now, this is straight out of where we've been in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11, if you glance back at it. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. Those who are sanctified, that's us. All have one source. I argue that's God, because God is our Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Remember that? It's there in verse 17 as well. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Your identity as a brother and sister of Jesus, a child of God, is by the Lord's initiative. And so this becomes the language we use in the church, isn't it? We are brothers and sisters. Why? Because God is our Father and Christ is our brother. Who are we then? Number two, as siblings of the Lord, we are made holy. Right? How is it the pastor can call them and call us holy brothers and sisters? What is it that makes us 
holy. It is the purification for sins that we saw first way back in chapter 1, verse 3, accomplished by the Son. Or very recently in verse 17 of chapter 2 again, it's Jesus Christ as our high priest making propitiation for the sins of the people. It's the Son as Jesus offering himself for our sins. That's how we're cleansed, sanctified, made holy. That's how Jesus sanctifies us. In other words, brothers and sisters, your sin has been dealt with by the death of Jesus. The pastor says you have been made holy, able to enter into the presence of the Lord even now, as Hebrews will spell out in the weeks to come. Which is why the third thing here concerning who we are is connected to this, it is according to the pastor that we share in a heavenly calling. That is a calling from heaven, from God. That is a calling also to heaven or to God. Heaven, we have said, is simply the terminology for where God dwells. It is whence the Son came in the incarnation and whither the Son returned in his ascension as a man. And it then is our destiny as well. God is indeed bringing many sons and daughters to glory, and he's doing it through his son. We share in the heavenly calling of Jesus. We are invited to enter the heavenly most holy place. We share that calling because our brother Jesus has gone there before us, you see, and makes possible our entrance as well. Much of that yet to come in the book of Hebrews. But this is what the pastor would have us know about ourselves. You are holy siblings of Jesus, children of God, called to dwell with him. We are the people of these last days. Approaching, if you will, the border of the promised resting place the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. One commentator says, what has been made of us by God, according to his free grace in Christ, belongs to what is to be believed as gospel, the good news. It is the given, that in which we find ourselves as an already accomplished fact on which we can only look back and from which we can only proceed. Do you think of yourself in anything like these ways? The way then that we proceed as holy brothers with a heavenly calling, holy brothers and sisters, the way we proceed is to consider Jesus, the pastor says. Which obviously means, if I may put on hold what the imperative consider is telling us, obviously we must, the crucial thing is then to know who Jesus is. So that's our second question this morning. Who is Jesus? But here again, the pastor begins with some, what we already know. Yet he nevertheless emphasizes it in verse 1. Jesus, he says, is the apostle and high priest of our confession, the pastor says. In other words, he is the revealer and the reconciler. The only way we can share in a heavenly calling is if the Son, as Jesus, reveals God to us and reconciles us to God. 
So the pastor calls Jesus, firstly, the apostle there. That's the only time in the New Testament that that's said about Jesus. But we know what the pastor means. Apostle means one who is sent. The 12 apostles are called that because they were sent out by our Lord. But in sending them, Jesus himself was their example, you see. In John's gospel, Jesus regularly said he was sent by the Father into the world. As one commentator says, Jesus is the first apostle, the great apostle, the source of all apostleship. Jesus is the one sent from God to earth with the revelation of his heavenly calling. He is the apostle and, our pastor says, he is the high priest. We've encountered this as well already. It means he is the go-between. He is the one who offers a sacrifice so that there can be reconciliation between God and human beings. So consider Jesus, the pastor says. He's the final word from God and the final way to God. He's the revealer and the reconciler. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. But then the pastor adds a new line of thinking here in our study of Hebrews, doesn't he? Because this Jesus, whom we are to consider, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession, it's right to consider him for one other reason, the pastor argues. And why is that? Well, beginning in verse 2, if you're, if you're in the text there, we see that the pastor argues we are right to consider Jesus because Jesus is superior to, or probably better, Jesus transcends even the likes of Moses, which if you're like me this week and you're reading this text and you're studying it, it causes you to scratch your head a little at first. Where'd Moses come from suddenly in this book? I mean, why bring this in now? Why does the line of thought here move things forward in Hebrews by referencing Moses? Why build all the way up to saying, consider Jesus and then go on? to make a big deal about how Jesus stands relative to Moses. That's not intuitive to most of us. So it's easy not to wrestle with it and just read it as a fact. But I think not to wrestle at least a little with it will be to miss out on what evidently was a, a would have really strongly resonated with the hearers of this sermon. So we have to ask, what was it about Moses that made it make sense for the pastor to turn that corner here? The answer is that Moses was simply the greatest human figure on the Jewish landscape. And for very good reason. He was the one chosen to be the great deliverer of his people in the Exodus. He was the one with whom God has spoken face to face as with a friend. He was the direct recipient of the Ten Commandments and the very law of God. He was, in other words, you see, the great apostle to his people. Called by God, appointed by God, and sent by God, the scriptures say, as God's representative to his people and the court of Pharaoh. Moses was the great apostle. 
And in a way, I think, Moses was even the great high priest of his people too. In fact, in Jewish traditions at this time in the first century, Moses was viewed as a priest. Hebrews does not present Moses as a priest explicitly, but among other things in Hebrews, Moses does sprinkle blood in the Passover in Hebrews 11. Moses does build the earthly sanctuary according to the heavenly pattern that's shown him, we'll find out in Hebrews 8. Moses does inaugurate the old covenant by cleansing everything with blood in chapter 9. There's all of that. And then I like what the New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says on this point. Bruce writes that Moses, it was Moses, he says, who, quote, was his people's most effective intercessor with God. It was his brother Aaron and not he who was high priest of Israel as far as title and investiture were concerned, but it was Moses and not Aaron who was Israel's true advocate with God. After the idolatrous festival in honor of the golden calf, you know that account, Exodus 32, in which Aaron himself was implicated. It was Moses whose prevailing plea procured pardon for his guilty people. And he'll do it later too when the spies that go into the land cause a rebellion and the people want to return to Egypt. So you see, Moses did function as, in effect, the great apostle and high priest for his people, the greatest they had ever known. And for this, Moses was revered. You consider his epitaph from the end of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, the text says, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I mean, the point is just Moses was simply the greatest. And the fact is Moses was great. The pastor says nothing to denigrate Moses. It's just that as the pastor sees it at this moment in Hebrews, the son is something else altogether. For the pastor, Moses and Jesus are simply not on the same level. They were both faithful. The pastor says that in verse 2. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, meaning God, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. We're not told it here, but that last bit about Moses being faithful in all God's house, that's, that's taken from Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. And the context of Numbers 12 to 14 is going to be really important in the next couple weeks, <laughs> next few weeks. But God's speaking in this passage in Numbers 12 about Moses. And just listen to what he says. There were challenges raised to, to Moses. But then God says, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Hear it. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Just think about that. 
That's God talking about Moses. I mean, Moses was faithful in all God's house. Yet, it's Jesus the pastor wants his hearers to consider, not Moses. Because for all that Moses was and all that Moses did, the pastor argues it's Jesus who's worthy of more glory. Why? Well, the short answer... <laughs> You don't want the long answer. The short answer is because Moses was faithful in God's house, but Jesus is the one who built it. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You see, the pastor is using an illustration from everyday life. He's saying no one thinks the house deserves more honor than the one who built it. The one is superior because he is the source of the other. And in this case, it's Jesus who built the house. Moses was faithful, but Moses only lived in the house. Now, very quickly, this becomes a rather complex argument, so I'm just going to try to stay to the main idea here for this moment in our, my sermon. We're going to learn, you'll see explicitly in a moment in verse 6, that the house language here is not a reference to a physical structure, but a reference to people. God's house, whether we're talking about the one that Moses lived in or the one that Jesus is over, God's house is ultimately God's people. So yes, both Jesus and Moses were faithful, but the pastor's point is that Jesus was faithful as the one who built the house, who established the people of God, who made it possible, whereas Moses was faithful as he fulfilled his role from within the people of God. Maybe you could summarize, I think you can summarize the point this way. Without Jesus... There never could have been a house at all. We'll have to think about that more as Hebrews goes along. That fact shouldn't surprise us, the pastor seems to argue. Why not? Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, the pastor reasons, but the builder of all things is God. So, <laughs> if verse 3 says, Jesus built the house of God, and then verse 4 says, the builder of all things is God, what's the conclusion? Well, again, to cut to the chase, I think it's basically that Jesus, the Son of God, is God. He made the house. He's the creator of all. He even made Moses so, consider Jesus, the pastor says. Now, verses 5 and 6 go on to say something pretty similar to what verses 3 and 4 did, but the contrast is expressed now in different language. Look at verse 5. Now, Moses, the pastor writes, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Do you hear it? Moses was a servant in the house of God. Christ is a son over the house of God. They're not on the same level. Now, 
it was indeed an exalted thing for Moses to be called God's servant as Moses was. But the pastor would have us see that despite Moses' greatness, we look forward to something better as Moses himself did. Moses was God's servant as a witness to the things that were to be spoken later. What could that be talking about? What does that mean? Well, I think it means that in the law and in the Levitical system of sacrifice and in the ceremonies and in the priesthood and in the tabernacle and in all these things written of by Moses that we're going to consider in Hebrews in weeks to come, we find testimony concerning Jesus, you see. So this is another reason Moses has entered the scene at this moment in Hebrews. He gives testimony. Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. After Jesus' resurrection, while he was walking on the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us Jesus was conversing with two disciples and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke writes, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus Christ is illuminated through God's speech in the prophets and above all, that means Moses. One author writes, we can scarcely be expected to have grasped what can be known of the Son if we have not given our full attention to the one to whom he is compared and who as God's servant witness to him. Moses. Moses displayed human faithfulness as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ, says our passage, is faithful over God's house as a son. What is the difference between a servant and a son? Well, a son, either by inheritance or by appointment of his father, rules the house. <laughs> the son is lord over the house. The son provides for those in the house. And having made the case that Jesus then transcends Moses, that Christ is faithful over God's house, over God's people, while Moses served in that house. The pastor now applies that thinking, if you can see it, to us today. In other words, as it was in Moses' day, so it is in ours. We're in the middle of verse 6 now, where the pastor draws his conclusion. Look at it. And we are his house, pastor claims. <laughs> In other words, there is but one continuous household of God built by the Son, who is Jesus. It is the household of all believers, the community of faith, the offspring of Abraham that never exists apart from the Son. We'll have to work that out more in the weeks to come. But given all that we've said concerning who we are and who Jesus is, or I've tried to say, what then are we to do, according to the pastor? Well, the answer won't surprise you if you know anything about Hebrews. We are to persevere, the pastor says. The text concludes that way by saying we are his house, we are his people, 
we are the siblings who share in a heavenly calling. If indeed, the pastor says, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, next week we'll consider, or in two weeks' time, when we're, when we're in Hebrews, we'll consider in greater detail what it looks like not to do that in the rest of chapter 3. But what I'd like to do just in the final minute or so that remains is to make one more positive connection. And that is, how is it that we can do this? How is it that we hold fast our confidence in what Jesus has accomplished for us? The removal of our sin, making us his holy brothers and sisters. How is it that we hold fast to our boasting, not boasting in things of this world, but in the great salvation, the hope that awaits us? The answer, I think, is finally the exhortation that the pastor gave us this morning. We do it by considering Jesus. Is that too simplistic a point to make here at the end? A healthy focus on Jesus in our lives is what encourages us to faithfulness, brothers and sisters. To consider has this sense of applying your mind diligently to it. It is to fix your attention in such a way that the significance of the thing you're focused on is learned, understood, applied. It doesn't mean just to look at something or notice something. Anyone can look at something, not really see it. To consider means to fix the attention on something in such a way that its inner meaning and the lesson that it's designed to teach may be learned and applied. Jesus uses the same word in Luke 12, verse 24, when he says, consider the ravens. In other words, set your mind on the ravens. Learn that they are provided for. Understand what that means in your life. Live in light of that. Understand and learn the lesson that God is seeking to teach you. So that here in Hebrews, what would considering Jesus mean? Well, it would mean setting your mind on the incarnate son. Who is he? He is the apostle. He is the high priest. He is the builder of the house of God. What do those truths about Jesus mean? How are they to be applied in your life and in mine? We've got a long way to go in Hebrews. But those questions cannot be answered with a quick occasional glance towards Jesus in your life, brothers and sisters. In both your private and your public and corporate settings, it requires your concentration, your discipline, your time, and, of course, your obedience. After all, we are to fix our thoughts on him who was faithful, whose faithfulness is what acts both as our example and our provision. For, as we'll see next time we're in Hebrews, faithfulness isn't merely emotional or intellectual. It's volitional. Therefore, our pastor continues on in verse 7 of Hebrews 3, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, consider Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.